Welcome to the 201st regular meeting of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. I'd like to call the microphone Ralph Newman, who is chairman of the Chicago Civil War Centennial Commission, for his remarks. Ralph? <coughs> Briefly, I just wanted to tell you that the city of Chicago will begin its commemoration of the Civil War Centennial with a, two, with a series of events taking place on the 2nd and 3rd of June of this year, that's Friday evening and Saturday morning, June 2nd and 3rd, when we will commemorate the 100th anniversary of the death of Stephen A. Douglas. On the evening of Friday, June 2nd, at 8.30, Paul Engel will speak at the Chicago Historical Society, and his subject will be Stephen Arnold Douglas, Citizen and Patriot. The next morning at 11 a.m. at the Douglas Monument at 35th, at the eastern end of 35th Street, right opposite the Illinois Central Tracks, we will have a commemorative ceremony and taking place, will be, taking part in that will be a representative of the President of the United States, a representative of the Governor, the Mayor of Chicago, and other people and representatives of the armed services. There will be a notice of it in your roundtable bulletin, and I suspect you will all receive invitations in addition. I hope you all attend. I might ask that you are commemorating the death of Stephen Arnold Douglas. It would be kindly appropriate if immediately afterward you had a good drink. He would have done that. <laughs> Time to get on to the entree of the evening. Our speaker tonight comes to us from Randolph Nathan Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia. He's a graduate of Virginia Military Institute. He has some Illinois associations too. He received his Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Chicago, and he also taught at the University of Illinois. He is presently working on the second volume of A Life of Patrick Henry, and he indicates that it should be in publication probably next year. He hopes. Uh, some of you I know have already read his book, Judah Benjamin, Confederate Statesman, because you have brought forward copies tonight for his autograph. Some of you may not know that Dr. Douglas Southall Freeman in the appendix of the South to Posterity set forth a definitive list of books which he entitled A Confederate Bookshelf. That was published in 1939. Dr. Mead's book was not published until 1943. When Ralph Newman wrote to Dr. Freeman to secure his permission to print a Confederate bookshelf, Dr. Freeman added to his original bookshelf a number of books, and one of them is Judah Benjamin, Confederate Statesman, by our speaker tonight. I think that's the greatest recommendation that one can get. Most of us still carry in our minds those pleasant memories of a cocktail party in Dr. Freeman's garden on our 1953 battlefield tour is one of the highlights of any of the tours that we've taken to date. We've developed a very warm association with Dr. Freeman. Without further ado, I'd like to call Dr. Mead 
to the restroom to talk on his favorite subject, Judah Benjamin. Thank you very much, Mr. Douglas, and it's a real pleasure to be here with you gentlemen tonight. It is customary for a speaker to begin by forming, or attempting to form, a pleasing personal relationship with the city or state where he is speaking. Examining my Judah P. Benjamin, Confederate statesman, for things I remember or don't remember, I find on page 62 that Wash Huntington, Benjamin's friend and fellow member in the 1850s of the New Orleans Boston Club, introduced your neighbor in Waukesha, Wisconsin, into the mysteries of the mint julep. Bucolic memories, as for example in the interesting May Bulletin of your roundtable. Noting the anniversary of the historic Chatham Artillery of Savannah, Georgia, your editor has had the temerity to reprint the recipe for the famous Chatham Artillery Punch, 12 gallons. I wonder if he could have given full thought to the recipe, individual ingredients, and total effect. I repeat it for you gentlemen because I will confess, I won't tell too much about this, I'm thankful that uh, one pound green tea and two gallons cold water, allowed to stand overnight, then strain. Three gallons Catawba wine, one gallon rum, one gallon brandy, one gallon rye, five pounds brown sugar, two quarts cherries, juice three dozen lemons, one gallon gin to make it smooth. <laughs> Mix the tea and juices together first, preferably in a cedar tub. Then add sugar and liquors. Let this stock set for a week or two covered. When ready to serve, add block of ice and 12 quarts of champagne. The stock and finished juice should be stirred well. Gentlemen, do not ask me how I know anything about Chatham Artillery Punch. I will only mention that it was served at a party for the Southern Historical Association in Savannah, that it is unhorsed some famous Americans, and can be more dangerous than Southern rifle bullets or swamp fever. Speaking more seriously, I need no strained effort to invoke pleasant recollections of my experiences in the Midwest. I started my college teaching as a very young and callow assistant of the University of Illinois who wore glasses in class in order to look older. At Urbana, or later during graduate work at Chicago and in the following years, I was indebted to the example and inspiration of your distinguished historians such as James E. Randall, William E. Dodd, Avery Craven and W.T. Hutchinson, Ralph Newman and Monroe Cockrell, too, have been generous and helpful with my research and writing. Altogether, Illinois, and especially Chicago, have meant much to my career, as is evidenced further by the kind invitation to speak to you tonight. Chicago has even provided me with an opportunity to examine some papers of Stonewall Jackson, whose grandson, Colonel Christian, was the head of the ROTC at the University of Chicago when I was a graduate student there. 
It was my old teacher, Dr. Dumas Malone, who first introduced me to the study of Southern history, which I pursued further at Chicago. And it was Dr. Malone who wrote a review of a volume of Dr. Douglas Freeman's Robert E. Lee, to which I, which I wish to allude here. In that review, Dr. Malone discussed Dr. Freeman's reasons for the Confederate loss at Gettysburg. Some of the tales connected therewith, or at least a certain flavor of them, have come down to me from my mother, who remembered old Confederate veterans sitting on the front porch of a southern mansion and talking endlessly about such matters as why Longstreet did not come up or if only Jackson had lived. Dr. Malone listed such standard explanations for the Southern defeat, then said that he wanted to add one more cause, the courage of the Northern soldiers. After all, they did stick it out there under a new commander, and when assaulted by what Teddy Roosevelt would later describe as the finest infantry on earth. Maybe some of you specialists might want to check me on that. That was said of the year 1862, but I submit that the Confederate shock troops at Gettysburg were just as good as they'd been uh, some months earlier. My biography of Judah P. Benjamin, on which I base my talk tonight, was an initial literary effort in which I would now make some stylistic revisions. But the facts I would change very little. The results of 12 years of exhaustive, and as my wife would say, exhausting research and writing in this country, England, and France, in addition to a full-time teaching position. In the late 20s and 30s, when I was doing this research, there were still many people with clear memories of the Southern Confederacy. There was, for instance, the old lady on Wilson Street in my hometown of Danville, Virginia, who remembered seeing Jefferson Davis riding up the street on a white horse in April 1865, about the time Lee surrendered. He had the saddest look she had ever seen on a man's face. There was white-haired, winsome old Captain Dinkins of New Orleans, who had once queried Jefferson Davis about the relative capabilities of certain leading Confederates. A boy captain under Forrest, captaincy was, I believe, by post-war courtesy, Dinkins had occasion to interview Jefferson Davis in the 1880s at Biloxi, Mississippi. Emboldened, as the old captain brightly informed me, by the unexpectedly strong contents of a tall glass. Is this working all right? Yeah. Sounds like it might be reverberating. He asked Davis some pointed questions. Who was the greatest Confederate general? Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, and I didn't find it out until too late. Davis answered. I don't necessarily agree with that, but uh, a very great cavalry. Who was the greatest Confederate statesman? Judah P. Benjamin, Davis replied, he was a master of law and the most accomplished statesman I have ever known. <coughs> that was a tribute which Jefferson Davis, after an opportunity for full reflection, paid to his most important cabinet member. Davis had known Benjamin as a United States Senator and a leader of the American Bar, then as the most influential member of the Confederate cabinet, his chief reliance among men. And Davis added that Benjamin's career in England had confirmed his opinion of him. Of course, the recollections of old men have to be used with due safeguards. I have had to rely chiefly on the official records and other standard sources, which are fortunately voluminous. Moreover, after 
completing my book, I refreshed myself on Benjamin by later teaching and writing, along with some interest in travel. In 1936, when I first went to London, there had been a retired clerk, or clerk from the temple who remembered visiting Benjamin's office in Lamb's Court and seeing this notice. No cases taken for less than 300 guineas, perhaps $3,000 in our current money. I recommend such procedure to lawyers in the audience who are bothered by too many clients. <laughs> On a mild July day in, in 1948, I happened to be back in London for some other research. Taking one of the familiar two-decker buses down to the city, the old section near the Thames, I found workmen still cleaning up debris left after the German blitz. And unhappily, they were finding plenty to do in the historic ends of court, training ground of so many generations of British lawyers, not to speak of statesmen and literary personages. One little two-story brick and stone building, teetering on a pitiful fragment of its foundation, as if to invite the workers' sledgehammers, was at Lamb's Court in the Middle Temple. Here, as I recall from my visit before the war, was the chambers of Judah P. Benjamin. As a battered old edifice was about to be pulled down into the rubble, I commented to a lawyer standing nearby on the unwitty, if necessary, destruction, but I drew only a blank look. Yet the greatest human triumphs are in the realm of the spirit. Benjamin's career offers an example of difficulties overcome and triumphs achieved, which is an inspiration to all of us. In his career under three flags, there's more of extraordinary interest than I could see here. I will concentrate on his role as a Confederate cabinet minister, the so-called brains of the Confederacy, including certain controversial speeches, which I hope will bring later queries. There are related questions, too, which are of real interest today and will bear full consideration, that is, in a spirit of tolerance and understanding. For surely in this age of the atomic bomb and Cold War, we have troubles enough without more bloody chasms in our own country. We had a second battle of Fort Sumter. Let us now call quits, except for friendly and informative gatherings, such as that to which I am honored to attend tonight. Now then, in this reasonable spirit, let us discuss some matters, once a very touchy and still an absorbing phase of our American drama. What right did men whose ancestors had fought for independence at Bunker Hill or Saratoga have to deny the same independence to their fellow Americans who lived south of the Mason and Dixon line? It was a hard question in 1861, and it is not without its complications even in the year of grace, 1961. Of course, the question was complicated by the slavery issue. Slavery should have been terminated gradually over a period of years, beginning sometime before the war. It should have been abolished by well-planned stages and with compensation to the slave owners, as was done in the British colonies. But that was an equitable program which was never advocated before the war by any considerable political party in the North also. Like most descendants of Confederate soldiers, I am glad that the Union was restored. But this is not to impugn the courage and sincerity of the Confederates or to argue that the cause was lost other than by a narrow margin. In depicting Benjamin's role in the
these stirring events, our stresses work as Jefferson Davis's confidant and right-hand man with certain of his key proposals, such as the shipment of cotton to Europe before the tightening of the northern blockade, and his strenuous efforts as war minister to concentrate the resources of the South as a whole. Whatever the opposition of sensitive generals and provincial state officials. The seeds of the Confederacy were sowed at birth, and the, those seeds were states' rights, wrote Frank Owsley, and Benjamin could have given him much material for the thesis. Then, too, there was Mr. Benjamin's tempting bait offered Louis Napoleon through Benjamin's scheming political associate of earlier days, John Slidell. And among other body of plans, as the cause became more precarious, Benjamin's desperate proposal for arming the slaves and letting them fight for their freedom. Stephen Benet's eloquent John Brown's body retains a perennial interest, and we can turn to it for some stimulating, if not meticulously accurate, judgments. Judah P. Benjamin, the dapper Jew, seal sleek, black-eyed, lawyer and epicure, able, well-hated, face alive with life, looked around the council chamber with the slight perpetual smile he held before himself continually like a silk rib fan. Behind the fan, his quick, shrewd, fluid mind weighed Gentiles in an old balance. There they were, tombs, a tall, laughing, restless Georgian, as fine to look at as a yelling bull, as hard to manage. Stevens, sickly and pale, sweet voice, weak-bodied, ailingly austere, the mind's thin steel wearing the body out, the racked intelligence, the crippled charm, Mallory, Reagan, Walker, at the head Davis. The mind behind the silk-ribbed fan was a dark prince, clothed in an eastern stuff, whose brown hands cupped about a crystal egg that filmed with colored cloud. The eyes stared, searching. An exotic figure in a Christian Occidental milieu, as Stephen Benet indicated, Judith e. Benjamin was of Sephardic or Spanish Jewish ancestry of the same racial stock as Benjamin Disraeli, Baruch Spinoza, and Bernard Baruch. In the Middle Ages, before they were vanished from the Iberian Peninsula, the Sephardim were numbered among its ablest and most energetic inhabitants. To a noteworthy extent, they were the commercial leaders, the scientists, and teachers of Spain. Among these Jews who fled from the Inquisition to enrich the civilization of other countries were several ancestors of Judah P. Benjamin. Benjamin was born at Christiansted, St. Croix, in 1811, when the Danish West Indian Islands were briefly under the Union Jack. Thus, he was not born an American citizen, and we have another ironic twist to the lines of the Bonnie Blue Flag. We are a band of brothers native to the soil. No aspersion is intended against the Bonnie Blue Flag, which, like Dixie, we Southerners believe to have a more stirring tune than the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, maybe we could lend our songs to you sometime. But on the point of the Confederate leaders of the 60s being natives to the soil, I will note that beside Benjamin, with his Sephardi and West Indian background, there was Christopher G. Meminger, the Secretary of the Treasurer, 
who was born in Wettenberg, Germany, while Josias Gorgas, the extremely capable head of the Confederate Ordnance Department, was a Pennsylvanian who had married an Alabama girl. We learn by the hardest, and then too easily forget, that the great genius of democracy lies largely in recruiting ability from all races and classes of people. Not that this point, however, is to be taken too literally in the case of that estimable but none too capable Charleston gentleman, Mr. Meminger. Dr. Rulak Hamilton, the delightful professor emeritus of history at the University of North Carolina, once told me this story with respect to Meminger. It seems that some years after the war, a young lady in Charleston had to write a paper for some southern organization on the subject of the Confederate finances, and that walking down the street, she ran into old Mr. Meminger. Old Mr. Meminger, she said, please tell me how much paper money the Confederate government issued. My dear, he replied, I can't remember whether it was 500 million or 500 billion. When Benjamin was a small boy, his father, a poor tradesman, moved his family to the Carolinas. While living at Fayetteville, North Carolina, and then at Charleston, Judah received a good grounding in the classics and also came under the influence of the gentlemanly, of the gentlemanly and conservative tradition of the old South Carolina port. The Negro slaves whom he encountered in great numbers there were at the most only a few generations from the African jungle. They were in a primitive state of civilization, comparable to that of our own Anglo-Saxon ancestors who first harried the shores of Great Britain. One of the leaders in a dangerous slave insurrection, attempted while Judah was a boy in Charleston, was Gullah, or Cooter Jack Pritchett, so-called because he had been born a conjurer in his native Angola, and believed that a cooter, or crab claw, which he carried with him, would save him from harm. If it were appropriate here and I had time, I could give you a little Gullah and one or two interesting Gullah stories. They still talk it a bit down in Charleston. When Prince Metternich was a youth at Strasbourg, he witnessed the excesses of a mob incited by the French Revolution, and what he saw influenced his future political philosophy. Judah was undoubtedly affected by the abortive insurrection in Charleston and related events of his formative American years. The Denmark Vesey plot, as it was called in Charleston, occurred in 1822, only a few years after the bloody debates over the Missouri Compromise. Like numerous southern youth of the period, Benjamin was matriculated at Yale College. When I examined the records at New Haven, I found no proof whatsoever for the assertion in a recent novel that Benjamin left Yale because of anti-Jewish prejudice. But there did appear to be some discreditable evidence relating to his abrupt departure from the college, and I could only give the facts as I found them and let the reader judge. Even if he were guilty of dishonesty as charged, it should be remembered that he was only 15 at the time, and that like every man who has made his mark in history, he is entitled to be judged by and large. In 1828, Benjamin sought his fortune in New Orleans. It was a great river port in a period of fluid development, and a man with brains and ambition could make his mark. He grew with the city, much as Cornelius Vanderbilt did with New York, or Stephen A. Douglas with Chicago. By dint of hard work, he worked as few men have before or since, and a brilliant intellect, 
he rapidly rose to distinction. While a clerk in a notary's office, he somehow eked out time to study law, was admitted to the bar, and in 1834 became the joint author of an authoritative digest of Louisiana's Supreme Court decision. Meanwhile, as a handsome youth of 21, with dark hair and eyes, he made an unsuccessful marriage with Natalie St. Martin, a beautiful but shallow French Creole of good family background. It was the old story of a couple marrying when very young and impetuous. Did Mr. Franklin have something to say about marrying haste and repented leisure? That's your motto here. Natalie at 16 was five years younger than Judah and ill-educated in all the arts, shall we say, but those are pleasing the men. <laughs> that was the spell of youth and New Orleans nights. I have a picture of Natalie in my book and uh, some other pictures here you might like to see afterwards. Uh, Mr. Benjamin, his Secretary of State and in his gown and in England and so on. Among copies of letters extremely helpful to me were some by the informed and intelligent Mrs. Jefferson Davis, a smarter person, I think, than her courageous and devoted but somewhat inflexible husband. Mrs. Davis spoke of Natalie's unassisted human nature and declared that she cared far more for brilliant society than for domesticity. We have a surviving fragment of one of her letters, written after the then struggling young Benjamin had urged her to be more careful of her expenditures. Oh, talk not to me of economy. It is so fatiguing, she replied. I am sure that a number of us here tonight at least have been through a stage when we found economy fatiguing, and to this extent we'll be in sympathy with her. In the 1840s, Natalie moved to Paris, and I shall say no more of her, except to add that she was a lively lady who did not decrease Mr. Benjamin's troubles. The stately Decatur House in Washington is, among other things, a memorial to the establishment which he could not maintain for her in America after he attained the eminence of a United States Senator. Just the other night, gentlemen, I was in Washington and went by the White House, and it's uh, rather shameful how we miss some of the most beautiful things. I never had noticed what lovely trees and grounds are. And then you go just a block up there on, I believe they call it Jackson Square, and there's the Decatur House, which is now being taken over by the National Trust. And there was a list of famous people that once lived there, Stephen Decatur, Henry Clay, and certain others. Mr. Benjamin's name is not given there. He tried to, once again, to do the best he could about his wife. I don't like to go into uh, certain details about a lady. He brought her back. She came back from Paris and they got a lot of fine furniture and before too long the unfortunate events and she was back in Paris and he felt like just giving up. I saw some uh, furniture that some of Senator Uli's family had bought and which later came down to the family of General Sherman Miles who was the head of Army Intelligence. I could go into many old stories here but uh, I just mentioned that was one, one of many when he felt like his life was just crumbling and when he did come back. That reminds me that when I, this was my first book and when I wrote it in 43, my agent wrote me one day and said, I wasn't writing primarily for this, I was trying to do an authoritative book, but said Hollywood was interested and uh, 
he got excited and uh, I as a college professor couldn't quite consider myself really making any money much out of anything but I got mildly excited and then Hollywood sent word back and said Mr. Benjamin's married life wasn't sweet enough uh, so I that man. Which reminds me that Dr. Freeman, uh, I told him that story. I was a great admirer of Dr. Freeman, but he was a fairly solemn gentleman, and I never saw him tell many jokes. But uh, he did tell me that Hollywood corresponded with him about his Robert E. Lee, and then sent word back that those men with beards weren't romantic enough. Uh, well, I can assure you, Hollywood just doesn't know the inside story about those men with beards. They, they got around very well back in those days. Uh, already burying himself in his work, Benjamin became a leader of the Louisiana Bar, specializing in commercial cases, a progressive sugar planter, and promoter of large business enterprises in areas as diverse as Louisiana, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, where he tried to promote a railroad connecting the Atlantic and the Pacific, and the Galapagos Islands, where he was interested in the great guana deposits. Of particular interest, too, was his far-sighted effort to develop a southern branch of the New Orleans Cairo Railroad, now the Illinois Central. Since the Civil War was lost, as many historians believe, by a narrow margin, it is interesting to speculate on what would have been the result if the railroad from Louisiana to Illinois had been completed earlier and the Northwest drawn more into the orbit of the Southwest. By the 1840s, Benjamin had also entered politics and he served as a Whig member of the Louisiana legislature and two state constitutional conventions. After declining an appointment to the Supreme Court, and I may mention that two of his law partners at one time or other were also offered appointments from the Supreme Court, three people down there in one city who had been served together as lawyers. But he represented Louisiana from 1853 to 1861 in the United States Senate. He became widely known as an orator in the old-fashioned Florida Southern School, and after changing parties, as a conservative Southern Democrat. Ever vigorous and resourceful, he likewise found time to appear frequently before the Supreme Court and was now recognized as one of the foremost American lawyers. In that simpler day, it was possible for him to stroll to the other end of the Capitol, argue an important commercial case, then return to the Senate in time for roll call. This picture I have here was a, originally, I believe, a Brady picture taken in the 50s. You know, you could dress up in your swallowtail coat in the morning in those days. It was good for all, all forms of uh, occasions all through the day. It was good for dress or whatnot, wear it all day, and then go out in it again at night. And there's Mr. Benjamin looking very prosperous in it in those days. Among his outstanding characteristics as a lawyer was his ability to reduce complex matters to simple terms. Once during a recess in a trial before the Supreme Court, a justice said to Jeremiah Black, one of Benjamin's opposing counsel, that little Jew from New Orleans has stated your case out of court. Gentlemen, that reminds me when I was uh, a student in college, every now and then I'd have a professor who would lecture for 50 minutes and he'd get through frowning and he would be saying something and I would come out in the class frowning and uh, I didn't understand exactly what he said and it wasn't until years later that it occurred to me that maybe he didn't understand either. And, uh, 
If, uh, one of the, the best proofs of a first-class mind, of course, is the ability to take complex things and state them in a simple way. Among many uh, labels in connection with this book, I, I read a great many of the reports of the United States against Castellero, which covers some 500 pages of the, Cal of the California reports. And it was perfectly marvelous how Benjamin could take anything as complex as that and get it down to a few simple equations so that it was said he stated his opponent's case out of court. Uh, Although sensitive about human feelings, as evidenced by some unorthodox views on the slavery issue, he never made any significant effort to avoid secession during the period when the Civil War issue might have been compromised. Indeed, one of the great lessons that comes to us today is the need of settling national and international problems while they are still small. In the 1850s, there were few politicians with the vision and courage of a Henry Clay. And yet, if there is any law of history, it is a law of change. Change occurs whether we like it or not, but change can be cushioned and guided by men of wisdom and goodwill. When Lincoln was elected in November 1860, Benjamin was in California where he was winning fame and financial success in U.S. against Castellero, a case involving the title to a large quicksilver mine. The voluminous accounts of the case revealed Benjamin's knowledge of Spanish and civil law and his ability to hold his own in rough and tumble battle with formidable opponents. On November 7, 1860, Benjamin made a pro-union speech at the Episcopal Church of Advent, San Francisco. He said that he could not look with aught but kindling eye and glowing heart at the majestic march of our union, which, like the great river upon whose banks I dwell, still pursued its resistless course into unknown ocean, which lies beyond, swelling as it advances, receiving its tributaries, each distinct, yet each uniting and forming one common reservoir of wealth and power, and each, I trust, to remain so united. He regretted the encroachment of Congress upon the rights of the states, but hoped that the people would come to a better understanding and appreciation of the Constitution. Then, and only then, will the hard sectional disputes, he said, which now stun our ears with their discordant din, be hushed forever. Reluctantly, in December 1860, Benjamin joined the secession movement. Two months later, he was appointed Confederate Attorney General. This was mostly due to Jefferson Davis's high opinion of his ability and character and to his desire to give a cabinet appointment to Louisiana. But Davis, with his exaggerated chivalric ideals, must also have been influenced by an incident which had occurred in the Senate a few years before. Benjamin, believing with some reason that he had been insulted by Davis, challenged him to a duel, whereupon Davis was brave and magnanimous enough to admit that he was wholly wrong. In a letter of March 19, 1861, to his friend James A. Byatt of Delaware, Benjamin expressed an optimistic opinion on the future of the Southern government and declared that the new Confederate Constitution was close to perfection. Actually, it did contain some significant changes, such as the provisions whereby the president could veto specific items of appropriation bills and department heads were given seats in Congress. Also, the president was to be limited to one term of six years and the process of ratification of amendments to the Constitution was somewhat simplified. But there were outmoded provisions in regard to slavery and states' rights. 
naturally. While Benjamin was of a sanguine temperament, he was nothing if not an experienced man of the world. Before the new government could secure its independence, it had to fight a determined enemy with greatly superior resources in men, money, ships, and nearly all the sinews of war. Benjamin was in favor of stern military preparations, even before the cabinet took the critical step of authorizing the bombardment of Fort Sumter. This was revealed by an incident later recalled for Pierce Butler, Benjamin's first biographer by Judge D.M. Shelby, a former law partner of L.P. Walker, the first Confederate Secretary of War. Shelby stated that when he was in the old Exchange Hotel in Montgomery on one occasion many years after the war, that Walker pointed out to him the very room near the parlor where the first Confederate cabinet meeting had been held. He indicated the relative positions of the ministers and President Davis. Mr. Walker continued. At that time, I, like everybody else, believed that there would be no war. In fact, I had gone about the state advising people to secede and promising to wipe up with my pocket handkerchief all the blood that would be shed. When this cabinet meeting was held, there was only one man there who had any sense, and that man was Benjamin. Mr. Benjamin proposed that the government purchase as much cotton as it could hold, at least 100,000 bales, and ship it at once to England. With the proceeds of a part of it, he advised the immediate purchase of at least 150,000 stain of small arms and guns and munitions in, in corresponding amounts. I forget the exact figures. The residue of the cotton was to be held as a basis for credit. Fall, said Benjamin, we are entering on a contest that must be long and costly. All the rest of us fairly ridiculed the idea of a serious war. Well, you know what happened. Benjamin's advice went heated and unheeded in another important respect. This following statement may seem a bit of treason coming from me as a Virginian, uh, that's why the capital should have been located. He later declared, this is Mr. Benjamin, that it was in his judgment expressed at the time a mistake to move the seat of government from Montgomery to Richmond. Since Richmond was the largest city with much better physical facilities for the new capital, Benjamin must have favored Montgomery, at least partly for military considerations. Richmond was only 115 miles from Washington, the northern capital, and it was an easy striking distance, not only overland, but by use of the York and James Rivers. The long defense of Richmond was indeed one of the heroic episodes of history, but the Confederate capital could have been in a much less vulnerable position. As Attorney General, Benjamin had little to do, but he ingratiated himself with the sensitive Jefferson Davis. He studied Davis's likes and dislikes, and also began to form a congenial and significant rapprochement with Verena Howell Davis, Jefferson Davis's young second wife. Owing to his ability and growing influence over the Confederate president, Benjamin was made acting Secretary of War, then full secretary, November 1861. In this latter post, he was notably efficient, though none too tactful with sensitive generals. 
In certain unfortunate personal relationships, however, with generals such as Joe Johnson, Beauregard, and Stonewall Jackson, he was to an appreciable extent acting for his chief who assumed an active control of military affairs. Because of his wide experience and cosmopolitan background, Benjamin could view the problems of the Confederacy with a cool detachment. His intelligent and gargantuan labors in mustering men, arms, and supplies were largely responsible for the Southern success in curbing the great Northern offensive of 1862. I have here in my book, and I intended to read it, but I told you I would go about 50 minutes and I'm going to time myself to that. I'll just give you an idea that if you look in the Confederate War records just a little before Benjamin retired, you'll find an account of the truly tremendous efforts that he made. Uh, above all, he could see the Confederacy as a whole. He wouldn't, would never lose uh, sight of the uh, greater thing for the lesser. And uh, you'll find that when he first sent agents over to Europe, that the market had been swept and there was great difficulty getting ammunition, but he made tremendous efforts in that regard. And, and the record was really impressive that they opened up all kinds of manufacturers in the South. And uh, in one way or another, uh, really remarkable achievements and indeed remarkable that any man could have stood the work that he did. I would find records, for instance, hey, he'd work all day Sunday, long afterwards, uh, uh, some years later when he was in England, and get to the age where he ought to have been slowing up. I remember reading that one, one day he started on a case, I believe it was on a Sunday, and he started in the morning at 10 o'clock or something like that, and, he, and with a half hour out for a light meal, he, he worked steadily right in the brief till about 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And uh, he'd get about as much work done in one day as some people would do in a week. And he never would tire out very easily. He never took any exercise very much. I'm a great bug for that, for being able to keep up. When I was talking in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, just recently, they asked me to talk on Lee there. I told them about how when Lee was at Washington Lee, and sometimes in the afternoon, he used to ride all the way over to Rockbridge Bass and back on his horse. That was just exercise for the day. It's about 24 miles, mind you. Now, uh, the most exercise Mr. Benjamin ever took that I could find was to walk from his house, which is in Richmond, there's a marker for it, about opposite the Jefferson Hotel, right near where Alan Glasgow lived, and then downtown about a mile, and then maybe he came home for lunch, and he got a few miles that way, but that was the extent of it. Uh, while holding to his central objective, Benjamin had to gamble on the loss of lesser points. He was blamed too severely for the capture of Roanoke Island, and there was an effort to force his resignation. I'm keeping within my prescribed limits, and I will merely mention something there. The story of what happened at Roanoke Island is a complex one, but you get deep into these things, you run into some curious episodes. One of the things that Mr. Benjamin was blamed so much for was the death of Jennings Wise, who had been the editor of one of the Richmond papers, The Inquirer, the son of Governor Wise. Well, Jennings Wise was one of those fighting cock duelists of that day. He had been in various duels, and he was captain of the Richmond Blues, and when he got down there, he had to prove his courage, and uh, the Confederates were very much outnumbered, and the, other, the Blues were behind trees, but he got out from behind a tree, wouldn't get behind, and he had on a cape, somewhat like a VMI cape, and he opened it up, and it was red on the inside. It was just about asking to be killed, and uh, Mr. Benjamin had to take that one, too. Which reminds me, uh, I suppose there's some military people here wouldn't agree with me on this, but it seems to me that the Army took a mighty long time to learn some things about 
color of uniforms and so on. I had a great uncle, for instance, in the Confederate Army who wrote his memoirs, and he told how after the Battle of Bull Run that he'd go out on the battlefield and there all these northern zoars who had on, I think maybe it was red pants and blue coats. And he said it was just sitting ducks. You could, you could hardly miss them when they were out on the battlefield. And there were a lot of mine are dead on the battlefield. Well, old Jennings Wise opened up his red cape as if to say, shoot me, boys. Uh, well, Benjamin was blamed for many things. Some he could have kept, but a great many he couldn't have kept. But Jefferson Davis uh, promoted him to be Secretary of State in the teeth of the criticism, while there was a very demand for his resignation. He became Davis's chief advisor and bulwark not only in foreign affairs, but in many other problems that increasingly beset the beleaguered government. As Secretary of State and the most important member of the Confederate Cabinet, Benjamin received a salary of $6,000 a year, increased by 1864 to $9,000. All of this, of course, in Confederate money. It has been, and you know, near the end of the war, it would take a whole a basket of money to go downtown to buy a meal in Richmond. It has been intimated that all which is needed to make a good university was Mark Hopkins and a student at the other end of the law. Even by such a standard, the staff assisting Benjamin in his extremely difficult task, as of September 30, 1863, seems pitifully small. I'll now read you the total role of the staff of the Confederate State Department, uh, besides Mr. Benjamin. L.Q. Washington, Chief Clerk, $1,750. Gracious me, that must have been more than four or five hundred there by in real value. William J. Bromwell, Clerk, drew $1,500, and he also got $200 more as disbursing clerk. James B. Baker, Clerk, got $1,500. George W. Paul, Messenger, $750. And Philip Green, Laborer, drew $45 a month. He was a colored man, a slave, and his master got $45 a month, and I suppose he had his curious slain on Confederate diplomacy. But, uh, of course, Mr. Benjamin could do about as much work as five people, and L.Q. Washington, who was a distant cousin of George, tells how that he would, when Mr. Benjamin would dictate a, an important foreign dispatch, that he would just go right straight through with it, just dictate it out, hardly a comma had to be put in it, just straight dictation without any notes. Uh, the northern blockade had now tightened, and Benjamin had great difficulty in communicating with Europe. None of his dispatches reached John Slidell in France until four months after Benjamin became Secretary of State, and for his most important dispatch to France, there was no reply for six months, long enough for grave changes in the foreign situation. Anticipating the possible loss of dispatches, Benjamin could silently peruse captured ones in the northern newspapers. He often sent copies by different routes via Wilmington and Nassau or elsewhere and used a cipher. It might interest you gentlemen to know how the Confederate cipher worked. It was a simple alphabetic substitution. For instance, uh, we take the word cat. C is the, th the third letter of the alphabet. Then you added five, C, D, E, F, G or something. And C changed to G or H. I'm moving fast here. And then you got all the letters down with that five added. And then they had a, a key phrase 
where liberty dwells, there is my country. That was inserted in the text with W and its appropriate number and so on. And uh, you get a jumble of letters. You look, if you look in the Confederate official records Navy, which were published much later than the Army ones, you'll find of some of that in, in code. A gentleman in Washington familiar with code translated some of it for me very easily. And the North got a horn to it. And Mr. Benjamin would write letters, and they would uh, get hold of them and read them and let them go on. And some of the letters that came up to Camden and so on with them in connection with the uh, Secret Service operation were read as it moved along. In April 1862, only a few weeks after his appointment as Secretary of State, Benjamin wrote John Slidell to offer Louis Napoleon large tariff and cotton concessions in exchange for recognition of the Confederacy. Louis Napoleon snapped at debate, but was unwilling to move without England. Hopes of English cooperation were dampened by Antietam and Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Then after Gettysburg, there was a growing conviction in France as well as England, that they could not run the risk of backing and losing hopes. During the latter years of the war, Jefferson Davis had only two intimate advisors, the, the well-meaning Braxton Bragg and Benjamin. Since Bragg was in the West with the Army during a great part of the period, Benjamin was then Davis's only close advisor in the capital. In the realm of military affairs, his influence was not as strong or salutary as in civil affairs. Although continuing to be his own chief of staff, Jefferson Davis did on a number of important occasions seek Benjamin's opinion on pressing military problems. Yet the advice Davis received was somewhat amateurish, for as much as Benjamin had learned while Secretary of War, he still had not advanced beyond the layman's conception of strategy. I'll give you one or two illustrations. Uh, among the old uh, Confederate memoirs is one by Reagan of Texas, who was a pretty able man, later was in, in Congress, as you may know. I uh, got in touch with his granddaughter down in Palestine, Texas. Reagan uh, uh, tells how before Gettysburg, there was a meeting of the cabinet, and the question was, whether to move into the north, into Pennsylvania, or to take a considerable force and try to relieve Gettysburg. Reagan said that he voted for moving the troops to the west, but apparently Benjamin, with the majority of the cabinet, uh, took the uh, other decision. Now another example uh, was when Joe Johnson was in front of Atlanta and Jefferson Davis uh, yielded to demands of, of uh, Governor Brown and so on, uh, had Johnson removed. Apparently, Benjamin was also in agreement uh, there. And now we come to the last desperate months of the war. Uh, and uh, Mr. Benjamin, again, I, since I don't want to go too long, I won't read a little I had intended to. He would go down to his work in the morning and uh, work till about 3 o'clock, covering his business very rapidly, and then he would join Davis and would go over with him all the uh, difficulties of the beleaguered Confederacy and say that Davis would come home a mass of throbbing nerves, but Mr. Benjamin, always brilliant and hopeful, somebody asked him one time how he could stand up under so much work and why he didn't uh, get uh, more discouraged, and he said when he got tired at the long cabinet meetings, he had a little piece of cakes that he would eat, and uh, he said anyway that he believed there was a destiny in the affairs of nations and there was no need of good and worrying about it all. And then it must be confessed that when he had his 
time off, he'd, he, he would relax. He'd go home and read his Horace, and uh, he liked to play cards, and uh, he would like him a good glass of sherry, and he said it would make Henry's sherry and something else that once patriotism became rampant, some of those remarks didn't happen sometimes uh, either. And uh, uh, before the war, he would gamble sometimes for large stakes, and uh, I ran into a story that during the Confederacy, one time they raided Russians' Pharaoh Bank, and I don't exactly understand how Pharaohs played at uh, earlier day, but anyhow, uh, they raided Pharaoh Bank, and it was written up that a uh, Confederate cabinet minister went out the door or the window. It was Mr. Benjamin, is probably true. It must have been a little bit of a difficulty for a fat gentleman like him. Uh, by this time, we are getting to the last part of the war, and I'm reminded that the Presbyterian minister, Dr. Hogue, was one of his good friends. And uh, just to give you an idea of the philosophy developing, the first part of the war, Dr. Hogue went over to Richmond, uh, went from Richmond over to England, and got a great many pocket testaments. They were slipped through the blockade, and they were issued to the soldiers. And the men used to wear them right here in a pocket in their blouse, and in a number of cases, they stopped bullets. And uh, the story was, went around among the troops, that it was divine intervention when the bullet was stopped. Well, by 64, the last part of the year, thing had been going on a mighty long time. Many a good man had been killed, and many of the others, uh, what was left of them, were just hanging on because they were brave men and didn't want to quit. Well, by that time, some of the boys discovered that a pack of cards put right here would stop a bullet equally well. Uh, by the way, Mr. Benjamin would make his wise cracks, and he made some another remark, at least as reputedly made it. I don't know whether he did or not, but the story was that somebody came to him and said that the uh, uh, men uh, didn't have any shoes, the Confederates sold them. He said they must have sold them for whiskey, which was, well, not true, it was an unfortunate remark to have gone around, even though he was wise cracking if he made the remark. Now, we come to the end of the war. And uh, I wish I had more time to tell you about his flight through the South. He, he accompanied Jefferson Davis as far as Georgia, and Davis was talking about renewing the campaign beyond the Mississippi. And Mr. Benjamin had said he was never going to be captured alive. And he told Davis goodbye. And he got on down into Florida, uh, dressed as a Frenchman, speaking uh, broken English. And he got lost in northern Florida at one time. And then he saw this parrot. And the parrot uh, called that high for Jeff. And he figured that the parrot must belong to a Confederate sympathizer. And he threw a, a little stone at him. And the parrot, uh, the uh, uh, bird, flew off to this farmer's home. He did turn out to be a Confederate sympathizer. And another time, uh, this uh, boat was stopped. And the Union soldiers searched it. And the only man they found on it, uh, one of the men on it, was this fat colored cook. And that was Mr. Benjamin, who had blackened his face and so on. And he got down to the old gambled mansion, which is near Bradenton. And I do have a picture of that, too. The state of Florida has uh, made that into a memorial. At least I thought I had it here. Maybe I haven't. And uh, Benjamin hid there, and when the northern troops came, he got out in the kind of the shrubbery behind there, and they got real close to him, and he had a little dog in his hand, and he held the dog's mouth, and the dog didn't yelp. And then I didn't realize what an achievement this was, gentlemen, until a few years ago, well, last year, I went down to Florida and went over to Nassau. I didn't realize fully how rough the uh, water is on that side of Florida. He went down into Tampa Bay, got in 
an open boat with two fishermen, went all the way around the southern coast of Florida, came out to Bimini, went, they had terrible trouble with water spikes and so on. One time his boat was leaking and got into a small skiff. And last uh, June, a year ago, we were taking a little vacation and we went out to Nassau and uh, my wife found it a paradise for buying things so cheaply and so on and she thought I was really crazy when I went over to the library on the second day but I got out the old Nassau Guardian and I turned to July, August of 65 and there I found this item. Mr. Benjamin, Secretary of the Lake Confederacy had been picked up in a boat off, I believe it was Lagos Key and he got to Nassau and then to Havana and went on over to England, and there I could give you a scene uh, a little bit later. The young fellows came up from Oxford that fall and uh, to eat their dinners in hall, in other words, so that they could go through the procedure to become solicitors and barristers. And sitting with them was this middle-aged, dark-haired gentleman, and making the best of it all, Mr. Benjamin, at the uh, middle age, started all over again. And due to his experience and the fact that he was able to claim English citizenship, the way he did that was that St. Croix was under the British flag in 1811. They shortened his time. Now, I won't go into more details in, in, in than to tell you that while waiting to get started in the law, he uh, wrote Benjamin on Sales, which is still a classic, that uh, he wrote Leaders for the London Telegraph. And within 10 years, and this is one of the really remarkable achievements in history, he'd become a leader of the British Bar. It'll interest you here in Illinois to know that he became uh, preeminently the best international lawyer in the world. And when uh, McCormick had some trouble about his patents over there, he got Mr. Benjamin. And in time, it got so that he would only take cases before the... Uh, uh, courts of Appeals. Uh, and when he finally retired uh, in the early 80s, the Bar of England gave a dinner in his honor. And all the leading lawyers were there, and uh, they had some perfectly marvelous things to say about him. In his last years, uh, he joined his wife in Paris, and uh, he had made three fortunes in his life, and his daughter Nanette had been buried a little while before, and he set her up at the diary. Uh, by the way, I was checking again today as I came down on the train. Toward the last, he was making uh, as much as about $150,000 a year, which is pretty good money for a lawyer in those days, when they, uh, I think you might say. I have a copy of this will that I got at Somerset House in London. He joined his wife in Paris, and they built this magnificent house on the Rue de Jena, uh, kind of place that is no longer built over there much. A carriage would drive into the courtyard and a marble stairway, three stories. When I was there in 36, it was such a fine house since the time of some of the strikes over there. Nobody was in it then. It had belonged to one of the Rothschilds or later. Well, Benjamin got over there, and he got ill, and he had a relapse. And then he died the 6th of May, 1884, at his home there in Paris. He was buried at the cemetery of Père Lachaise in a tomb that for many years after his death bore inscriptions only for the families of St. Martin and de Boussignet. But in 1938, the Paris chapter of the Daughters of the Confederacy put a marker on the grave of the man whose life, despite its share of human weaknesses, offers one of the most remarkable examples in modern history of successful struggle against adversity. Thank you, Dr. Mead. I'm sure we all 
enjoyed the insight into the life of one of the major figures in the Confederacy. At this time, I'd like to throw the meeting open to our usual discussion period. Is there any questions? I'll Would you write? Down. Way back there, the first one I saw. Excuse me, back here. All right. They haven't done much about that. I have. Uh, there's a little literature. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't plan it done by the state of Florida. I read a little on it, though, it's come from down there. And uh, they, they have uh, taken the, the house over at, uh, as a state memorial, though it's gone that far. But, pardon me? It's the Gamble Mansion, uh, which is near Bradenton. It's a lovely old southern mansion, uh, stone, as I recall, and built about in the 1850s. I believe the next question is in here. Yes. Mason and Slidell. Well, of course, Mason was a descendant of a Mason of the Virginia Bill of Rights. He was a Confederate minister to England and uh, of a prominent Virginia family. I never did think one of our English people at the time of the war. Uh, by the way, the English upper classes liked him, and he used to get invited out to uh, this duchesses and that. And one duchess one time uh, said that she liked Mr. Benjamin, I mean, Mr. Mason so much he could ruin my carpets any day. He was one of the famous chores of that day. And I never felt he had very much ability, and he was, he was sensitive, too sensitive, I think. Slidell, on the other hand, was originally a New Yorker who had moved to uh, New Orleans, and a, and a very able man, a considerable of a slick politician, but uh, he knew how to, how to deal with Louis Napoleon, who was one of the same stripe. And I would say, apart from certain slickness, which I didn't admire him, that he did a very able job. Of course, Benjamin had been uh, in uh, the uh, Senate with him, you see. Now, Slidell lived in France after the war, and I met this uh, lady, uh, Madame La Générale Marchand. I don't know if anybody in the audience will remember about this, but uh, in the around about 1900, there was that the shoulder instance when the French and the British met uh, in the desert down uh, south of Egypt, and that was that same Captain Marchand who'd become a general, and his uh, wife was John Slidell's granddaughter. He had saved some money, and they lived on over there, and had intermarried with prominent French families. And I did meet her, and I uh, met the Deacon de Saint-Romain, who had married one of the children. Now, is that enough for your question there? Uh, all right. Yes, James. What, what is your question? Yes. Uh, well, I regret very much to say that I did go up there looking into the records, never realizing what I was going to find, and uh, I did find some evidence that I, I couldn't honestly avoid, and I have it in my book, and you, if you'd like to, you can read it and see there is some evidence there. Now, when I first looked at it, I thought maybe it was just a case of trying to smear the man at that break of the wall, but there was some evidence that I honestly felt I had to give, and you can look at it and decide what you believe. Secondly, you didn't bring out that Natalie was a strong Catholic. You said she was a Creole. That's right. She was a strong. The fact that maybe because she was a strong Catholic in a union with a Jew, that perhaps that might have been the reason why they didn't get along so well. I don't think that helped things very much. But by the way, uh, Benjamin was not particularly religious, and New Orleans was a place where uh, 
people didn't pay too much attention to some of those differences as much as they would have in some areas, but I do think that contributed. Now, one of the family uh, told me that Benjamin would probably have separated from us if it hadn't been for the daughter. He was crazy about that daughter. And then he liked her, too, in a way. Curious how he continued to support her all those years, uh, despite everything.
he's six or so, and, and as the years went on, he got tighter. And uh, he, he was really a rather small man, that's correct. And his voice is referred to as being silver. He had a, had a delightful voice, apparently a soft voice, but when he went over to England, some people didn't like it, thought it was a little too much of a harsh uh, accent, southern accent to it. Uh, are there any more? Any other questions, gentlemen? Sure. If not, I think the meeting stands adjourned. Thank you. Good night.